So the sermon this morning is walk in light. How are we to do this? How are we to maintain this walk? And what does that mean in the first place? I do have a main idea slide for us this time so we can orient our thinking. The main idea of these passages is if we want to know how to have fellowship with God, we have to know who he is, who we are, what keeps us from fellowship, what makes fellowship possible. Fellowship with God promotes spiritual growth. We only grow spiritually when we are in fellowship with God. We as believers can walk outside of fellowship with God. But when we do so, even the good things that we do do not produce any spiritual growth. They are not accounted to us for rewards because we do them by our power and not by God's. The Holy Spirit only aids us in doing those things which are in his will. So if we are walking outside of his will, nothing is being produced through us spiritually. And so fellowship, once again, is going to be a primary thought through these verses. Fellowship is possible on the basis of commonality. John is going to start out diving into this epistle now that he has passed his introduction with the perfect righteous standard of who God is. Verse 5 is no random verse, as we will see. It sets the tone for the entire epistle. God is absolutely perfect. He is the absolute perfect standard. How then can we possibly have anything in, in commonality with him? What can man have in common with God? We can have Jesus, who is the God-man. Apart from him, we have no possibility of fellowship with God. That's not only in our justification, but in our sanctification as well. We are not saved by faith and then sanctified by works. We're not saved by faith and sanctified by a law that we are not under. We are saved by faith and sanctified by faith. It has to be that way. <clears throat> Fellowship is then practically growing in increased intimacy and partnership among those who have that commonality. This intimacy is founded upon the object of fellowship, who is Christ. With that, let's jump in. We want to understand who God is, who we are, and how we can have fellowship with him. <clears throat> Remember, John is presenting this doctrine on the basis of his apostolic authority. He has been commissioned to teach the church doctrine for living in the church. He was commissioned by Christ himself. He has been given this message from Christ. This is the message that we have heard from him. This hymn goes back to verse 3, where Jesus Christ is the antecedent. They heard this message from Christ, and they are announcing it now to the church. John is planting the perfect standard at the center of the church and saying, we're not measuring ourselves against one another. We're not measuring ourselves against any uh, any other standard except for God and God alone. And that is a difficult standard to live up to. <clears throat> John is one of the most explicit authors in the New Testament telling us exactly what he means. He does not mince words. In John 4.24, he tells us God is spirit. John is a very black and white author. He will always juxtapose spirit and flesh, 
life and death, light and darkness, truth and lies. He doesn't have any gray area in his language. In 1 John 4.16, God is love. Thank you. And here in 1 John 1.5, God is light. Without looking at the context, we could make this mean whatever we wanted it to mean. But this is coming towards the end of the canon. We have all of scriptural revelation before us to understand what it means that God is light. And this is really explaining the essence of who he is. Absolute perfection. In fact, when we go all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 3, we see that creation itself begins with light. We see that it begins with the revealing of the essential nature of God. When he is revealing himself over the earth, and this is when things become visible. Light is actually a physical manifestation of God. When God manifests himself, he does so as light, because this matches his character. Just as he made us in his image, so when he put his son into a body, he put it into a human body, not the body of an angel, not the body of an ape, but the body of a man. So when God manifests himself visibly, but not in human form, it is in light because this matches his character. And when he created light, he created it to match his character, to tell us something about who he is. And so on the first day of creation, we see light illuminating all that he has done. In Exodus 13, we see God manifest himself as light. The Lord was going before them, that is the crowd coming out of Egypt, the Exodus generation. And he went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So he led them through the wilderness by his light. We see in the eternal state, there is no more need for created light because his light is actually going to physically illuminate the world. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the lamb. His light is intimately correlated with his glory. The ultimate purpose of revelation, of creation, is to bring God glory, to reveal his glory, to demonstrate it, God's light also reveals. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. The light dwells with him. Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Light is also how he represents salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. And whom shall I dread? He was the salvation that appeared to first century Israel, offering them personal salvation and national salvation, offering them the kingdom of light. 1 John 1, 4, in him was life. The life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The sad story of first century Israel is most of them missed it. The light came in, salvation was offered, and many of them said, no, thank you. Our righteousness is good enough. They did not recognize the perfect standard. They looked to the law for their own righteousness, rather than recognizing that the law condemned them as sinners and looked, looking to Jesus, the one who could keep the law and the one who was perfectly righteous before God. This is also the salvation to the Gentiles, seen all the way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, 6, this was no mystery to the Jews that the Gentiles would be brought in as Gentiles into the salvation of God, yet they seem to have either ignored it or forgotten it by the first century. Isaiah said, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore Israel, the preserved ones, or to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. Only the salvation of Israel was not big enough glory to represent the perfect glory of Jesus Christ. God had bigger plans in store for him. He will bring about the restoration of Israel. He will also bring salvation to the whole world. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we understand who God is. He is perfectly righteous. He is the one who can save. His glory surpasses all things. Who is man then? Romans 3.9, we read to both Jews and Greeks are, under, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Where God is perfect righteousness, man is absent of all righteousness. See, the problem for man is not just the presence of sin, but it is the absence of righteousness and the absence of life. God takes care of all of these problems for us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember, his glory is his light. That's how it manifests. And so it is not we who can produce any righteousness in ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot rid ourselves of sin. But God, through Jesus, can. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is a salvation scripture. He pulled us out of the slave market of sin. He put us into the salvation of Christ. We received this by faith. Romans 7, 18 though. I know that nothing good dwells in me. We might say this looks a lot like Romans 3, what was that, 3, 8? 3, 23. But we have to recognize who is saying this. This is Paul. And this is Paul after he has gone through justification by faith alone, and he is now on sanctification by faith alone. And what is he saying? Me, a saved believer, 
an apostle to the church, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You see, Paul, in his early Christian life, as he was maturing in his faith, tried to be justified by faith and sanctified by works. He tried to do it in his flesh. He tried to please God after salvation, thinking, he has saved me now by the blood of his son, so I will save myself the rest of the way by living to him. This doesn't work. What begins with faith has to continue with faith. What begins as a work of God has to continue as a work of God. He hasn't begun the project that we get to finish. He starts and finishes it. Now this is where another issue occurs because we'll see as we go through 1 John that many people try to to uh, mitigate John's absolute statements, such as 1 John 3, 6, where he says, no Christian sins. They'll try to translate that saying it's the present tense, so that means continuous, so it has the idea of habitual. No Christian habitually sins. Well, let me ask you, what is worse, having a bad habit of lying or murdering someone just once? Which one puts you out of fellowship with God? Both. You don't have to have a habit of murdering people to be out of the fellowship with God. This is why John places this absolute standard right at the beginning. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This doesn't mean that the darkness kind of outweighs the light or the light outweighs the dark. There is absolutely no darkness darkness. This is the absolute standard. John could not have chosen a, a more forceful way to say this. This double negation, uk estin udemia, there is absolutely none at all whatsoever. There is no room in fellowship with God to introduce darkness. Darkness is going to put you out of fellowship with God. The solution then that needs to be found is how do we stay in fellowship with God? And when we are out of fellowship with God, how do we return to fellowship with God? How do we walk with him? How do we grow by him? Jesus, when he was here on earth, told, actually I believe this was to a group of Pharisees, while you have the light, believe in the light. Be justified by the light, by this revelation that Jesus is bringing to the Jews, so that you may become sons of light, so that you might be born of the light to have a nature that is compatible with light. He continues, I have come as light into the world so that every man who believes in me, that is settled and finished justification, will not remain in darkness. This is a subjunctive giving the possibility that the one who has been saved, who has been born of light, might choose to continue to walk in darkness despite having been born and now having a capacity for fellowship with God. 
the issue exists. How do we have fellowship with God? So now that we know who God is and what the perfect righteous standard is and how we are not able to align with him by our own works, what then might be the solution? John combats three false solutions. The first one is the idea of bringing God down to our level so that we might have fellowship with him. This may have been a response to some sort of statement in John's day, such as, yes, I sin, but it doesn't matter. I can still have fellowship with God. Yes, he's perfect. And no, I'm not perfect, but that's okay. He loves me. I am a sinner. Therefore, I can have fellowship with him while I am sinning. John is going to say absolutely not. This is apathy towards sin. This is antinomianism, lawlessness, licentiousness. There is no liberty for lawlessness. There is liberty from lawlessness in Christ. This begins the first of quite a few conditional structures that John presents. He presents a condition and then he presents the result of that condition if it is met. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, in English, we have only the particle if to deal with, but in Greek, they actually have four different ways of presenting conditional structures. The first one, the first conditional, expresses that this is a likely possibility. Second conditional says that this is an unlikely possibility. Third conditional is completely neutral. It could happen. It could not happen. And the third or the fourth is wishful thinking. This is a third conditional, which means this is an absolute neutral. This could happen. It could not happen. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice as well his pronoun, we. This is first and foremost the apostolic we. John and the apostles can also fall into this error. In verse 4, John brought his audience in to that we. These are all saved believers. These are not responses of unbelievers. These are responses that believers might have, and they are bad responses to the problem of sin. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, then the result is we lie and we do not practice the truth. What does it mean then to walk in the darkness? Well, Ephesians 5.3 tells us, but immorality or any impurity this same kind of absolute perfect standard, or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Paul has presented a similar righteous standard. In verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The solution for, let's see, walking in darkness and saying we can have fellowship with him is to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. 
then the result of that is we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Now notice as well, this is not walking by means of the light. This is not walking in accordance with the light. This is walking in the light. This is a location of walking. We have to let John say what John is actually saying. When we walk, when we go about our Christian life, it has to have the light of God's word shining on it. When sin crops up, we have to be honest about it. We have to let God's word reveal that sin because that is when it gets dealt with. Sweeping it under the rug is not a solution. You know, I've had a hole in my tooth for quite a while and I keep telling myself it's okay. It doesn't hurt that much. Just when I drink cold water, you know, the right thing to do is to get it taken care of to say, yeah, that's a problem. That's not how it should be. Let me go to the dentist. Part of the reason I don't is because I'm lazy. Maybe I don't want to spend the money on that, but something else. In a spiritual sense, to apply this to a spiritual matter, that is not walking in the light. That is sweeping a problem under the rug. If you've ever cleaned the house for your mother and swept things under the rug, you know how much of a problem this can become. Hiding things under your bed, that was my problem. Yes, I cleaned my room. What is the result then? If we walk in the light, if we let God's word expose the sinfulness in us, then a, a result from that is that we can have fellowship with one another. Remember, we have commonality with God when we're walking in the light. We can have fellowship with him. That is the first and primary sense of fellowship, but the secondary is with one another as well. A good, healthy body has all of its members walking in the same direction. And so here is the sense there. We should all be walking in the light so that we all have fellowship with one another. There is no spiritual sense of having fellowship with one another, but not with God. We attach ourselves directly to God, and then we have fellowship with one another because we are all attached to God. And then here, what is the result? A second result. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the basis for why this fellowship is possible. John is presenting a solution to the problem of sin. And in each one of these bad statements that man makes, John is going to build on this idea to further clarify what it means that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sins. Ephesians 5, 7, therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now you know how strange a thing it is as a child to realize that plants eat light? I think God knew what he was doing when he designed creation. When we are in his light, 
His light through us produces fruit. We're not doing this. He is. A plant in darkness is going to atrophy. It's going to die. It's not going to produce fruit or any good works. It might begin to mold and mildew, but this is not fruit. This is what it looks like when a believer walks out of fellowship with God. It stretches out its moldy branches to God and says, look at the fruit I produced for you. This is sanctification by works. It doesn't work. God in and through us, shining on us by his word and we in love respond to him with obedience. John eight twelve, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we are following Jesus, when we are listening to his words, when we are listening to the words of Jesus that the apostles gave to us, recorded for us to live by, to walk by, when we are walking in that light, we are not walking in darkness. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. This was a possibility. Learn to follow Jesus so that you understand the light, so that you recognize it, and that you can walk by means of that light. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. I love this one, John 3.20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. How often is this us? No, I don't want to read God's word because it's convicting. No, I don't want to read God's word because it makes me feel bad about myself. How about letting it make you feel good about God, good about Jesus and what he has done for you? How about instead of self-righteousness, we learn the value of his righteousness. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. This can be a painful process. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Paul continue, continues in Ephesians 5, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Everything that becomes visible is light. Now, you know, in Leviticus, God commanded the Hebrews to put out a soiled garment with a spot on it in the light. The light would cure that spot, and if it didn't, they were to burn it. Light is actually a wonderful cleanser. Everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is a poem or a hymn they used and the metaphor from Paul is clear. He is speaking to believers he is telling the believer who is asleep in his walk to wake up, to walk in that light. Let Christ shine on him. Remember, the biblical concept of death is not non-existence, but it is separation. 
arise from the dead. Stop separating yourself from God. Stop living by other means other than his word. Come back to his word. Let the word shine on you and walk in that light. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is Paul's climax. This is him telling you how to do this. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And how do we know what the will of the Lord is? We read his word. You don't know him if you're not listening to him. Listening to him doesn't mean going and sitting in a dark closet by yourself, meditating on your own thoughts, pretending that these are the words of God speaking to you. It means reading your Bibles. This was the inerrant, infallible word that he gave to us. These are the words that he chose to record so that we might live by them. This is the only way to live. This is the only way to know his will. And then he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Just as we can get drunk by wine, and it has a consuming force on us, makes us do things we might not want to do, might not have done when we weren't drunk. It has a controlling force. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This doesn't mean get more of the Spirit itself. You cannot have more of the Spirit. You were given all of the Spirit the moment you were saved. This means let the Spirit fill you. Be filled with the Spirit. Let it pour into you the truth of doctrine and the application. Be filled with the Spirit. Let it have a controlling influence on your life. Let it take over, like some let wine take over. Galatians 5.16 then, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by means of the Spirit. Don't do things apart from it. Don't do things by the flesh. Don't look to your own will and say, this is what God wants me to do, but look to God's will and say, okay, that's what I will do. Because the Spirit is going to give me the power to do that. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Flesh and spirit in always juxtaposed against one another. And the result of this then, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Just like Jesus, the night before he was, yeah, the night he was betrayed actually washed the feet of his disciples and told them, you don't need a full bath, you're already cleaned. But the dirt that is on your feet from walking in the world, that needs to be washed off. This is what it means to be cleansed as a believer. We've already been bathed once, sanctified in the blood of Christ, set apart for him for salvation. But to be washed with his blood continually as a believer means that his sacrifice was not good just for those sins that we committed before we came to faith, but for those during and after as well. If you think about it, his sacrifice on the cross was before we committed a single sin because we were not born yet. All of our sins were future to the cross. Just because we were saved at one moment in time doesn't mean our future sins after that are not also taken care of by the blood of the cross. They are. They are already paid for. 
let the application of that be applied to you so that you might walk in fellowship with God. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. This is Christian sanctification. The same way we are saved, we are also sanctified. So walking in the light, the basis of our operation is the power of the Holy Spirit. Not the power of the flesh, but the power of the Spirit working in us. We have been born into the light. We now have a nature that is capable of walking with God. Our other nature has not disappeared, but a nature has been born in us through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, so that we can walk in fellowship, but we don't power that spirit by the flesh. The flesh is opposed to it. We power that spirit by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only empowers the believer to do what is in the will of God. The will of God is revealed in his word. Walking in the light means letting God's word bathe us in truth. And that brings us to the second bad response that we can have to sin. This is to elevate ourselves to his level. The last one was bringing him down to our level and saying, we can have fellowship with him even when we sin. This next response seems ludicrous, but many Christians believe it. I do not sin anymore. This one just kind of feels like nails on a chalkboard when you hear that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, let's ask someone who lives with you if you no longer sin anymore. These are actually some of the most difficult people to be around. Why? Because if something goes wrong, it couldn't have been them. They don't sin anymore. It must have been you. Fun friends. That actually hinders fellowship. This is the absolute standard that there is no darkness in God at all. So what they are saying then is, all right, there's no darkness in me at all. I can have fellowship with him. He made me perfect once for all. I can have fellowship with him. What does John say? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. We are self-deluded. This is a bad problem. You know, we can convince someone often that they have been lied to by someone else, but convincing someone that they're lying to themselves, this is a very challenging problem. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth is not illuminating this believer's walk. This believer, by means of saying that they have no sin, is walking in darkness because they are not letting the light of the word bathe them in truth. Proverbs 29, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin. The Hebrew construction expects a negative response, no one. They have not been bathed in the truth of God's word. Romans 7, 18 again, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Paul as a believer, mature in his sanctification at this point. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. 
Paul would not make this claim for himself. Why would we? The good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. If I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. We see the duality of Paul's nature, a nature of light and a nature of the flesh. He says, if I am sinning, it is the sin nature in me doing it. That is still me. That is still part of me. That is still there. And when I am sinning, I am walking in the power of the flesh, not the power of the spirit. I am accessing a different power. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. What is the solution? If we confess our sins. Once again, a third class conditional. The believer may not confess his sins. He ought to. These are all mitigated commands that John is giving us. He is not outright telling us, do this, do that, do this. But he is telling us, this is where you get a good result. This is a soft command. Do this as a Christian. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. Now, I love this juxtaposition. This believer is saying, I am perfectly faithful. There is no sin in me. I'm not doing sin. The response to this is to realize, yes, you are. You are unfaithful. The result of this, he is faithful. That is what brings us into fellowship with God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins, he is going to forgive those sins. Confession of sins are for those that have been brought to light by the reading of scripture. When we are in his word, we become convicted of those sins in our lives that are opposed to his word. When we are convicted of those sins, confess them to God. Agree with him. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't say, oh no, that's not a sin. Yes, it is. You're not fooling him. You're deluding yourself. If you confess that he is absolutely faithful, he will forgive that sin. If you agree with him that it is a sin, then it is already taken care of. That is a solution. And it's a lot better than going to the dentist. He is not only faithful to do it, but he is righteous to do it. He is not diminishing his righteousness. He is not winking at that sin and saying, okay, we'll let that one slide because you agree with me. He's taking care of it. His righteousness is not diminished. It's actually increased. Because that sin has already been paid for. It shouldn't be paid for twice. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now this takes care of the issue of what about those unknown sins? Yes, I'm reading God's word. Yes, I'm walking in the light then. Yes, when I am convicted of this sin, I am agreeing. But what about the sins I haven't yet been convicted of? 
He is faithful and he is righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes care of the sins that we confess and he takes care of those that we haven't yet grown into the maturity of recognizing yet. We will. We will get there. But his blood has already covered the penalty for those sins. They will not keep us out of fellowship. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It is perfectly efficacious. Confessing sin then is agreeing with God about what sin is and whether or not we did it. Confession or agreeing with God about what sin is and when we do it is necessary for fellowship and growth. Now, we tend to completely disconnect our relationship with God from any human analogy. But this doesn't work either because we are children of God. When we sin and when we confess that sin, we're not confessing it before the courtroom of heaven. We are confessing it to our Father. Fellowship is broken when we disobey his will. Just like a son who goes against the word of his father breaks fellowship with his father. Now the father says, what did you do wrong? Saying nothing is not going to get you out of trouble. I didn't do anything wrong. What about saying, sorry, I'm just such a terrible child. I have no idea what I did wrong. I just know I'm a terrible child. Is this going to fix the problem? No. When you confess, when you agree with God about your sins, tell him what you did. Just like you would a parent. I'm sorry that I lied to you. I'm sorry that when you told me to be home by 10, I did not. That was a sin. That broke fellowship. That broke trust. I was not depending on you. I was depending on me. This is confession. And you know, this doesn't mean that the parent is not going to discipline the child. A loving parent does discipline his child. But you know, there is a huge difference between a parent giving his petulant son a swat and a parent telling his child, I have to do this because I love you. Because you need to grow. You need to learn. And let's learn on these little sins before it gets to big sins. The Greek word confess is a very rare word in the New Testament. It is the word hamalageo. Hamaf, the word for the same, and lageo, the verb for speak. This is to say the same thing. To say the same thing as God about our sin. In other words, to agree. Paul uses it the same way. Actually, the word confessing is supplied here by the translator, but it obviously in the context had that same sense. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. And the means of agreeing was confessing that the law is good. Agreeing and confessing is the same sense. Unfortunately, by centuries of church tradition, the concept of confessing has turned into going into a dark black box and telling your priest what you did wrong. This is not confessing. 
Confession happens in the sphere of wrongdoing. When you disobey God's will, you have transgressed against God and his righteousness. You confess to God your sin by agreeing with him. You say the same thing as he does about your sin. This brings you into fellowship because Jesus' blood has paid for those sins. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. It hurts a lot less to receive a spanking when you've apologized than it does when you still don't think you did anything wrong. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide, writes. Oh, this was David, actually. Psalms. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. What is David talking about? Did David have any misconceptions about his own sinfulness? If he did, he definitely did not after Bathsheba. Did this put him out of salvation? Did God say, okay, you're not saved anymore? You're no longer my son. No. God had promises to fulfill through him. God has promises to us as well. Promise of eternal life. Second Samuel 24, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. David has grown a sensitivity towards sin. I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. David is turning to God to solve the issue of his sinfulness. We should do what David does. We don't say we don't have sin. We don't say sin doesn't matter. We say, God, take care of it because I can't. Hebrews 12.4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus did. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. The worst possible response we can have to the discipline of God is to become bitter towards him for it. This is not going to help us, and it's not going to help us grow spiritually. You know, I'll often pray like, Lord, I need to learn this. Please don't let it hurt. But it might. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. When you see someone who obviously does not have God working in their lives, they are most to be pitied. When the world seems to be just right for them, nothing ever goes wrong for them. God is not disciplining them in their lives. And what does that mean? They are not a son of God. 
So when you get the read from God, because he loves you, remember that that is why. Because it's not about success in the world, but it's about maturity in him. We're not growing up to reign in this world, but to reign in his kingdom. He is raising sons that will inherit with him. We are being disciplined in this world at times so that we can reign in the next. Remember this, whenever you're tempted to say, why is it always got to be me, God? And say, thank you. And learn and grow from that. If we don't learn and grow from that, it's going to keep coming. It's going to be less effective each time. It is going to hurt each time a bit more because you've become a petulant child. And for a petulant child who thinks they've done nothing wrong, the swat hurts all the more. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We don't scorn the discipline of God. When we confess our sins, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for discipline. But we should know that the penalty has already been paid. The discipline is not to pay the penalty for sin, but it is to grow us up in the maturity of faith. Here is another bad response that we can have. We can delude ourselves about our own nature. This is a little different than the I don't sin anymore. This is I can't sin anymore. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, this is the first time he has used a perfective, intensive verb, which has the idea of something in the past that affects the present. This sinning is a sin nature. This sin nature we received from Adam. Genesis 5 told us that Adam was made in the image of God, and when he bore a son, Seth, Seth was not in God's image, Seth was in Adam's image. And what bore God's image through Adam was also presented in Seth, but it's the addition that's the problem, the image of Adam, a sinful, fallen man. This is the imputed sin nature. We're all born with it. David recognizes this. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. He was born with a sin nature. God has a plan to grow him into maturity. Purify me with hyssop, David writes, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Discipline. But what else? 
hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. After David was saved, he still had sins. He still had iniquities. He would still stumble and fall. He turned to God to take care of them. He did not deny his sin nature. He recognized that it was there and that it will remain there until this body is gone. In, if Christ is in you, writes Paul in Romans 8, though the body is dead or separated because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The sin nature does not disappear in this life. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in Ephesians 4.30, it says, do not grieve the spirit of God. How do you grieve the spirit of God when he reveals to you the will of God by reading God's word and the spirit shows you the spiritual significance of that thing. This is a plea from God to obey. Choosing not to is grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit doesn't unseal you when he's grieved. He is stuck with you. He is in you. He is intimately attached. So when you are not walking in the will of God, this grieves him because he's still in you while you're walking in darkness and there is no darkness in God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul starts to give some specifics about what might grieve the Holy Spirit. This one who denies the sin nature, denies God's word. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Could it be any clearer? Remember John's, the importance that John places on doctrine. We have to know what God says about things because otherwise we are going to delude ourselves. We're not going to fool other people. We fool ourselves. And you know, this might be the worst response of all because not only it, it is not the bringing God down to your level, it's not bringing yourself up to God's level, it's putting yourself above God's. Saying his word says this, I say different. Whatever happened to let God be true and all men be liars. The truth of God's word is not in this person. They are not being illuminated by his word. They are not walking in the light. They are not in fellowship. These remedies for the problem of sin are actually the problem. We have to lean on God's solutions. He gave us one in verse seven. He gave us another in verse nine. If we walk in the light, if we walk in the revelation of his word, if we confess those sins that the word reveals, that is how we take care of the sin problem because Christ's blood has taken care of those sins. So what is John's aim then? This is actually the solution 
that he gives to the third problem. But he starts to summarize the whole issue here. He says, my little children. This is an endearing term. This is not just simply children, technon. This is technion, or in the vocative, technia. This is also not the Greek word for a son by inheritance, huioi, or huios. This is a son by nature. Some translated as born ones. What is the solution to our problem of sin and fellowship with God? It's not adoption. It's new birth. We have been born again by his light. We share something about his nature, but not in our sin nature. That has no part in him, but in the new nature that he has given us as believers. So we do not walk by the power of the flesh, but by the power of the spirit, which is now has the capacity not to sin. So he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He is not telling us that they are all forgiven so that we can go about sinning. This is the error that the first one fell into. This is not a license to sin. This is telling us how we can be in fellowship with him. We have to be honest about our sin. We have to be honest about it. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your minds completely on the finishing of your salvation. Where the sin nature will be taken care of and know that he has made provision for you while it is still in you. As obedient children, then, Peter writes, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. As the light reveals, we grow in wisdom. Do not act in the ignorance that you once had, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That is a tall order. This does not mean have a habit of not sinning or don't have a habit of sinning. This means don't sin. Do not. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The solution to this in the flesh is impossible. 1 John 1.8 said, if we say we don't sin, we lie. We can't just say, okay, I'm doing this. No, we have to learn how to depend on him. And while we are walking in the light, while we are dependent on the spirit, we do not sin. But you do sin when you step out of that light. When you walk by means of the flesh rather than walking by means of the spirit, you do sin. Here he gets to the ultimate cure for this problem. How do we have fellowship with God despite the fact that we are sinners? If anyone sins, a third class conditional, this may happen and it may not. We have an advocate with the Father. And that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, what is an advocate? In the Greek, it's parakletos. We've romanized this into the paraclete or the helper. 
In John, especially chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus speaks of the paraclete when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he says, I'm going to send you another helper. Another meaning another of the same kind, in addition. He is going back to heaven himself. He is going to send another of the same kind to us. Jesus here in 1 John 2.1 is called our paraclete, our helper. So we have one in heaven and we have one living in us. This is amazing. This is how we can walk in fellowship with God because Jesus, who we have commonality with because he is God and he is man, he sits at the right hand of God and he is our helper. He is the reason we can stay in fellowship at all. He is the reason that for any period of time we can go without sinning. As an unbeliever, you live in a permanent state of sinning because to do anything apart from God is sinful. As believers, if we do anything apart from God, it is sinful. How can we do anything with God unless we are brought near by the blood of Christ? Who is he advocating for us against? Our sins before the high court of heaven have been once and for all dealt with. They will never be relitigated. Why then does he stand as an advocate, which some could translate as a prosecuting lawyer? We are not undergoing a legal case before God. He is our father. What is the legal case being brought against us? It's being brought by the accuser by Satan, who points to us when we are in sin and says, look at that one. He is not in you. He is not walking with you. He did this with Job. We got a whole book about it. Job was a saved believer. Revelation 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. Satan keeps a list of your sins, and he accuses you before God of those sins. So when God reveals sins to you as a father, don't think he doesn't know what you've already done. In fact, there is an accuser standing up in heaven that wants to act on these sins that you've committed. And if you do not want to come under the discipline of God for those sins, confess them. Because being out of fellowship is a dangerous thing. One who remains out of fellowship can be disciplined to the point of being taken home. Where God might hand you over, not your soul to Satan, but your body. This happens. In 1 Corinthians 5, there is a member of the body of the local church who is acting in flagrant sin and refuses to admit that what he is doing is sinful. And the threat brought against him is that his body might be handed over to Satan. His soul is perfectly protected. But what is in danger is his fellowship with God. It is while in fellowship with God 
that we earn rewards in heaven. The one who dies physically because he has been out of fellowship with God, though a believer, will be ashamed at the Lord's returning, not because he doesn't get to go with him, but because he did not run the course. He did not fight the good fight. He did not keep the faith. We do not want to be ashamed at the Lord's coming. John will come back to that issue at the end of this book. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He stands at God's right hand. He pleads the case before God. And when we confess our sins to God, we are brought back into fellowship with him and we will not be handed over for our bodies to be destroyed. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Yet he is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't take care of our sin problem ourselves. We let Jesus do it. Take a look at what he did here with Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. The accuser stood before God and said, I want Peter. Peter believed in Jesus. He could not have his soul. But he wants to make him a useless servant. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. He advocated on Peter's behalf before God that your faith may not fail, that you might persevere. Not resting in the power of his flesh, when he did that, he ended up denying Christ three times. But humbly accepting that what God says is true, what God says about our sin is true coming to recognize who we are before God and what Christ has done for us and how we are seen before God because of Christ, that is the game changer. So Jesus says, when you have turned again, when you have been brought back into fellowship, when you have been disciplined by God, when your spiritual maturity has been increased because of your discipline, strengthen your brothers. Let this all be a learning experience. Do not sit and feel sorry for yourself that you were swatted. Learn from it. Grow up. It's amazing that as adults, we sometimes become more petulant children than the children that we are given to raise. I am not a parent myself, but I was a teacher. And sometimes it was just really frustrating that no matter what you did, these kids just don't learn. They don't get it. They keep doing the same dumb things over and over again. We forget that we do the same thing. And God is just sitting there, not again. <laughs> Come on, we've been over this. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all.
We have one who does meet God's righteous standard, sitting at the right hand of God, and he intercedes on our behalf, and that is how we walk in fellowship with God. We let him take care of our sins, and we don't try to do it ourselves. We don't say, it's all right, Jesus, I got this one. Nope, he's got it. Why does he got it? Because he paid for it. We couldn't pay for it. He is the propitiation for our sins. Again, another rare Greek word, hilasmos, which means satisfaction, atonement. He has satisfied God's wrath against sin. No man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. He became the things we could not be, and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Now I accidentally cut the last verse out of here that uh, he is not only a propitiation for our sins, but for those of the whole world. This is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. There is not one person who has ever been born or whoever will be born or who is alive today on this earth for whom Christ has not paid for absolutely every single one of the sins they have ever committed or will commit. The price has already been paid. The application to that person is made at the moment of faith. When you believe that is applied to your account and your sins are washed away. So finally, how do we live in fellowship with God? We rest in our faith. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We cannot take care of our sinfulness. Only God can. Ignoring it, denying it, or anything else. Letting God's word reveal your sin. Agreeing with God about the sinfulness. And resting in the finished work of Christ for cleansing is the only way to have and maintain fellowship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this amazing revelation that you have given to us by your Apostle John. We thank you that he was faithful to write these words, and we thank you for the Spirit which made sure that they remained inerrant words, so that we might trust them, we might learn from them and be instructed, so that we can grow in our faith, grow in our maturity as sons of God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.